So it's the book of Philippians, chapter 1, and we're going to be in uh, the first 11 verses. Um, Philippians, chapter 1, starting in verse 1, and uh, this is what God's Word says. Paul and Timothy, servants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with the overseers and deacons. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. Always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. This is chapter 1, verse 6. I am unaware of this or I am sure, back up there, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, we come before you and we are grateful uh, for this book that sits on our laps and that we have on our phones. God, we're thankful uh, for your word. Lord Jesus, we remember when you said of the scriptures that they are the mouth of God. And so, Lord, as we study this passage together, we ask that you would speak. We ask that you would show us our sin. We ask that you would show us the ways that we have fallen short of what you desire for us. And Lord, we also ask that you would show us the ways that Christ has fulfilled everything that is necessary for us to have a relationship with you. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So there's a story of a young boy. And this young boy, his name is Harry. And Harry lived the first 10 years of his life uh, with uh, one understanding of who he is and, and how he interacts with the rest of the world. And on the eve of Harry's 11th birthday, a very large, half-human, half-giant named Hagrid bursts through the door and uh, gives a shocking revelation to Harry that he wasn't expecting. And he says the phrase, you're a wizard, Harry. And from that moment on, Harry has, has a, a new way of seeing himself and a new way of seeing the world around him and the people around him because of this, this uh, truth that was revealed to him. 
And in a similar way, what we see in uh, Paul's letter to the Philippians is a man who has been changed by Jesus Christ, is a man who has met Jesus and the way that he sees himself and the way that he sees other people and the way that he sees the world around him is forever changed. And if you know who the Apostle Paul is, you know that how he winds up is pretty uh, radically different from how he started. If you read uh, in the book of Acts, you, you know that, that Paul used to have the name Saul, and Saul hated Christians, hated Jesus, and was actually on his way to get uh, paperwork so that he could arrest Christians. And he was actually present when uh, a whole group of people uh, murdered a Christian named Stephen. Okay, that's who this guy was. But then we read in Acts chapter 9 that Paul, as he was on his way to go get this paperwork so that he could persecute the church, Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, shows up on the road to Damascus and changes the course of his life forever. You see, Paul got some new information that day too. He got some information that Jesus is God, that Jesus is the savior of the world. And Paul was never the same. We know that, that uh, he, uh, he, he changed his name to, to Paul and um, that he lived the rest of his life trying to tell people about Jesus. And so this letter to the Philippians um, is, some people have said that it's the letter of joy. They talk about how often the word joy is used throughout the letter. Uh, But one of the things that you'll notice as we read through this letter together is that while joy is mentioned a lot, there's another topic that's mentioned far more often, and that topic is Jesus. In fact, in the first chapter alone, 30 verses, Jesus Christ is mentioned by name 18 times, 18 times in 30 verses which means that over 50% of what he's talking about in just the first chapter is Jesus-centered, okay? So it's safe to say that this is not a letter so much so about, you know, if you do these three steps, you'll have a joyful life. This is a letter about Christ. This letter, what it presents to us is a man who has encountered Jesus, who has a relationship with Jesus, And the result of that relationship is that he rejoices, is that he lives a life of joy because of Christ, because of Jesus. In fact, if you look ahead a little bit to chapter 3, verse 8, Paul uh, kind of summarizes his joy in Jesus. And he says this, chapter 3, verse 8. Actually, we'll back up to verse 7. But whatever gain I had, I counted it as loss for Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish 
in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. And so you see what this letter shows us is a person who has been found by Jesus and who lives his life rejoicing in Jesus. Hence, the name of our series is Rejoicing in Jesus. And so, the question that we're going to be asking of this passage is related to our our main theme, um, which is this. This is what this passage shows us. It shows us that if you belong to Jesus then that should change how you see yourself and how you see other people. If you belong to Jesus, then that new identity should change how you see yourself and how you see other people. And so if that is so, then the question that arises is, what does this passage teach us about how we should see ourselves and and how we should see other people? Well, if you'll permit me to use another illustration, how many of you wear glasses out of curiosity? Okay, a few of you, okay, good. Um, when you don't wear glasses, it's difficult for you to see, yes? It's hard, harder, um, <laughs> sort of. Um, the reality is those glasses make, uh, make things clearer for you, yes? Yes. Mm-hmm. Okay, in a similar way, What this passage is going to do for us is it is going to act like a lens for us to learn how we should see ourselves and how we should see other people. Because what the Bible teaches us is that we are all born spiritually blind. We are all born unable to see ourselves, unable to see God, and unable to see other people as they truly are, as God desires for us to see them. And so we need God to do a work in our hearts to open the eyes of our hearts, as we saw in Ephesians chapter 1, so that we can see God rightly, so we can see ourselves rightly, and so we can see other people. And so in this passage, we're going to talk about three specific lenses through which to view the world that Paul talks about here. The first is the lens of humility. The lens of humility. The second is the lens of identity. And the third is the lens of sovereignty. So the lens of humility, the lens of identity, and the lens of sovereignty. Let's talk about that first one. Look with me at verse 1. Paul and Timothy, servants... Of Christ Jesus. Now, what's unique about this uh, beginning to a letter? Okay, so when you guys write a letter, uh, I'll give you a little bit of backstory here. When you write a letter, usually, if I'm writing a letter to Jen, I would say, "Dear Jen, you know, how is your day?" or whatever. Um, but in this particular day, this this would have been uh, this letter would have been rolled up like a scroll, and so it would have been opened like this. So the the name 
um, they would often begin saying the name at the beginning so that people didn't have to scroll all the way to the bottom because you and I, when we sign the letter now, we're like, sincerely, uh, Cielo. Or, you know, I got it right? Yes. yes. Nice. Um, so it was, you know, sincerely fill in the blank. Um, and so in this particular time, they would say, state the name first so that you didn't have to scroll all the way to the bottom and look at the letter and at the bottom of the letter and, and all of that. But what's striking about, about the beginning of this letter is it's different than a lot of the other ways that Paul begins his letter. If you look uh, just a few pages to the right in, or excuse me, to the left in the letter of Ephesians, which we just finished studying a few months ago, how does Paul begin the letter? He says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. Okay? Contrast that here with what he says about himself in this letter. He says, Paul and Timothy, servants of Jesus Christ. Christ. Now, the word servant here is the Greek word doulos, okay? And it could actually be translated slave. That's what it actually, that's the technical way that it should be translated. But because modern translators recognize that we have a bad history with slavery here in America, they change it to servant to help remove the baggage, which, you know, makes sense. We'll save it for later. Um, And so um, Paul here, he's giving a description of himself, but it's one of humility, okay? It's a description of humility rather than a description of authority, which is what we see in Ephesians and some of his other letters. You see, Paul uh, could have said, uh, this is Paul and and Timmy, uh, people who have seen Jesus risen from the dead. He could have done that. And that would have given him some, uh, some, uh, some sense of, uh, would have given the audience like, oh, okay, this guy has seen Jesus alive after he you know, was crucified. Okay, this guy knows what he's talking about. Or he could have said, uh, Paul and, and Timmy, um, uh, an apostle, right? Someone who is literally, that word means sent out, sent out by Jesus Christ. But he doesn't say that. Instead, he comes with humility and he says, it's Paul and Timmy, servants of Jesus. In other words, he says, if you want to know who I am, I am a slave of Jesus Christ and my life is not my own. My life belongs to Jesus there's a, a movie and a book called um, The Count of Monte Cristo. Um, and there's a scene in there where a couple of the characters, the main character is fighting with another character named Jacopo. And uh, they basically, through a series of events, they, they are for, being forced to fight to the death. Okay? And uh, so the main character, they're struggling, and the main character gets the other, upper hand. Okay? And rather than killing this guy... He shows mercy. He saves his life, right? And this guy's response to this mercy is he grabs him by the shirt and he says, I am your man forever. I am your man forever. And that is what Paul, that's the attitude that Paul has here. He's saying, I am Jesus's man forever. 
He doesn't come with this big sense of self-importance or, or uh, trying to make himself uh, sound authoritative. Instead, he says, I'm just a guy who is a servant. Just a guy who's serving Jesus and serving Jesus' people. So my question for us is, if this is Paul who is literally an apostle, who literally saw Jesus from the dead, who literally wrote many uh, parts of the New Testament, if that's his attitude, one of humility, the way that he sees himself, what is your attitude about yourself? How do you see yourself? Because if you're really honest, I think more often than not, you have a higher view of yourself. We like to think that we're important. We like to get the attention of other people. We don't like to be the servant of all because in our minds, the people who are the servant of everyone don't get the glory. They don't get the attention. They're the doormat, right? But in the upside down way of God's kingdom, God says, if you want to be great, be the slave of everyone. And Jesus is the ultimate example of that. He says in Mark 10, 45, he says, even the son of man, okay, this is God almighty here talking to his disciples after they were arguing about who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom. Okay, God almighty talking to his disciples. And he says this, even the son of man did not come to be served, but rather to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. My guess is, if you're anything like me, you usually think more highly of yourself than you ought to. And if you feel that way, if you don't see yourself as a servant of Jesus Christ and a servant of his people, just know that as I'm telling you this, and if you feel convicted, that's God's grace. God is graciously revealing to you in this moment through his word that you need to see yourself differently. He's putting some, some glasses in front of your eyes, the eyes of your heart, and he's saying, see yourself this way, with humility. See yourself as a servant of Jesus Christ and his people. But not only does he put the lens of humility before our eyes just in the first, can you believe we're just in the first sentence? It's amazing. There's so much here just in the first Seven words. But not only that, the next thing that we see is the lens of, of our identity. Look at verse two, uh, excuse me, the second half of verse one. It says, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So what I want us to notice here though is, so first he's told us, okay, this is who it's from. This is who the letter's from. Now he's telling us who the letter is to. And he, he says some really interesting things here. He says, to all the saints in Christ Jesus. To all the saints who are in Christ Jesus. And what's significant about that is he doesn't say to all the Christians at Philippi. He doesn't say to all of the Jesus followers at Philippi. 
He could have said that, but instead he points out something that is so fundamental to their identity that it is the main way that he talks about being a Christian. Do you guys know that the word Christian is only used three times in the New Testament? It's only used three times. And every single time, it is most likely a slander. It's, it wasn't something of, of how Christians thought of themselves. You want to know the, the main way that Christians thought about themselves? How, how Paul teaches us to think about ourselves? People who are in Christ. That is, people who are in a relationship with Jesus. And that's what he says here. He says, that's your identity. If you, are, if you call yourself a Christian, you are someone who is in Christ. You're someone who is in a relationship with Christ. Jack was making a comment in our group chat earlier uh, talking about how, uh, oh man, I can't even remember what it was, but it was like all talking about like union with Christ. And I was like, man, I don't even know if he knows how profound like what he's saying is, but it was cool. Uh, and so Paul here, when he's talking about their identity, how they should see themselves, he says you should see yourself first as saints, or literally translated holy ones, who are in Christ, in a relationship with Christ. Now that phrase saints, it literally means holy ones. Now when we hear the word holy, that's not really something that we use in our, our everyday conversations. I don't, you know, generally speaking, when you go to Safeway, you don't hear the checker saying, oh, holy this and holy that, um, right? It's just not something that's in our, our common vernacular. Um, and yet, it is, it is the theme of holiness is something that runs all throughout the Bible that describes God and what we are, holiness is also what we are supposed to be. But when you, when you break it down in the simplest terms, holiness is at the, at the kind of the core of it all. It's two things, okay? Holiness is this. It is separation from Satan and the world or separation from Satan and sin. And it is devotion to Christ and his plans. Christ and his ways. Christ and his word. So it is a separation from Satan and his kingdom, okay? You're leaving that behind. That's what it means to be holy. It means to walk away from everything that is uh, against God's will. And it is to walk towards Jesus Christ and his will for your life. That's holiness in a real basic nutshell. So he's saying that's who you are. But not only that, you are also people who are in Christ, that is, the phrase in Christ, it's, it's covenantal language. It conveys this idea that if you are in Christ, you are bound in a covenant of love to Jesus Christ for eternity. Bound to Jesus Christ in a covenant of love forever. And that's how Paul sees himself. You see that servants of Christ Jesus. And and that's how he sees these Christians as well, to all the saints in Christ Jesus. So my question for you, as you hear that, and as this passage presents it to you as a way of thinking about yourself, if someone were to ask you, what is the most basic thing about you? If someone were to ask you, Landon, what is the wonder that is Landon? You would say, I am 
you know, a soccer player? Or, you know, what, what, what would you say? What would Autumn say? What would Abby say? What would you say about yourself that is the most basic thing? Would it be, I'm a Korshkin, or I'm a Carnahan, or would that be the most basic thing in your mind? Because if you follow Jesus, the most fundamentally true thing about you is you're someone who belongs to Jesus. The most fundamentally true thing about you is you're someone who is in Christ Jesus. And that is how you should think about yourself if you call yourself a Christian. You're someone who is bound to Jesus in a relationship of love for all of eternity. And that changes things. It changes how you view yourself. It also changes how you treat other people. Because when you recognize how you, know, how you treat your siblings or how you treat other people that you go to church with, you're like, oh, I'm going to spend eternity with that person. And I was a jerk to them last week. It changes things because you recognize that the people that you are around, especially if they're Christians, you're going to spend forever with them because they are also people who are in Christ. They are, as Hebrews says, people whom Jesus is not ashamed of and people in whom the Holy Spirit of Jesus dwells. It changes everything. It changes how you see yourself and it changes how you see other people. So we've got the lens of humility, the lens of identity, but now the last one that we see here is we need to see ourselves and see other people through the lens of God's sovereignty. Look at verse 6. Verse 6 says this, And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Okay. So, in verses 3 through 7, Paul is doing two things, okay? First, he is recognizing that God has already been at work, okay? So, that's 3 through 8, okay? He's saying, I see that God has already been at work in your life. But then, he also makes a request to God. So, he prays to the Lord for these people, so he recognizes that God has already been at work, and then he asks God to do more in their lives. I see that God has already, uh, is it says, um, that your love may abound more, right? So God has already been at work in their hearts, as verse 6 says, and, and Paul says, more. I want to see God do more in your life. So we see he's doing two things here, but what's significant about both of them is whether it's the recognizing or the requesting, what's significant about both of them is that he doesn't pat the Philippians on the back at all. He says God's doing everything. God's doing it all. Verse six, he says, he who began, I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to bring it to completion at the end. So he's saying God started it, God sustains it, and God will bring it to the finish. And it being you, if you are a Christian, God raised you to life by the power of the Holy Spirit. He has now he's connected you to himself, and God did that. There's so much, there's so much talk in our modern uh, evangelical culture about just make a decision for Jesus. Just make a, deci- make a decision. No. God 
causes you to be born again. You don't just get to decide to become part of God's family. The Holy Spirit causes you to be born again. And then you say, well, then how, how do I know? How do I, is there fruit in your life? Do you hate your sin and do you love Jesus? You see, you guys who heard my testimony this last week, you know, I grew up in the church. I would have called myself a Christian and yet I had no love for Jesus. I didn't care what his will was for my life. And then in a moment, the Holy Spirit did something in my heart and he made me love Jesus. He made me want Jesus. He made me want to obey Jesus. It's God who begins that work. The sovereignty of God at work. So not only does it change the way you see yourself and it gives you hope because you recognize that it's not up to you. God's the one who's going to keep you all the way. But not only that, it gives you hope for your friends. When you look around your school and you see uh, the paganism that's running rampant and the people who are turning their backs on God, it can, does it feel overwhelming at times? I mean, you think, my goodness, how is Jesus going to save that guy? He's a big jerk, right? I mean, uh, in, if you're like me, you think that way, but uh, I'm a sinner, so, you know. Um, but but we, we, we can get overwhelmed looking at the state of the world and the state of other people's souls, and we think, my goodness, I don't know how it's going to happen. And then you remember, oh, God did that to me, and I, I was dead, and now I'm alive. God sovereignly did that. The, the lens of God's sovereignty here that Paul is placing before our eyes helps us to really see that everything is in God's hands. God is in control of it all. Our Father, this is our Father's world. I think about recently, um, Evelyn has been, uh, that's my daughter, uh, for those of you who don't know. She's about four months old as of Friday. Um, she is very cute. Uh, she's also a monster and she doesn't sleep, so pray for me, people. Pray for me. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, recently, she, um, she, we've been kind of, kind of holding her up a little bit, and she's, she's kind of trying to like stand on our laps and stuff. But in reality, it's not, it's, she's not standing. Like I'm holding her up, but she, if she feels like she is, she's really trying hard. But I'm the one that's holding her up. And in a similar way, God is the one who holds us up. We, we certainly do try, and we certainly do our part but the Lord is the one who sovereignly holds us up. The Lord is the one who began your spiritual life, the one who caused you to be born again. And the Lord is the one who's going to sustain you all the rest of your days. And when Jesus returns, or when you see him face to face, he will finish that work. And you will be a perfect reflection of Jesus Christ. And so we need to see ourselves through the lens of God's sovereignty, and we need to see other people through the lens of God's sovereignty, because that's the only way to have hope 
for yourself and your struggle against sin. And that's the only way to have hope uh, for the world and uh, its struggle against sin and the devil. So my question for you is, do you see your life that way? Do you see your life as a Christian? Do you think that it was just you that made the choice? Or do you recognize that it's by the grace of God that you are what you are and that you are in a relationship with Jesus? And and it's by the grace of God that anybody is in Christ. Do you see yourself that way? Do you see all of your life as being in the hands of God? as being part of the story that God has written for your life. I love how the psalmist puts it. He says, all of my days were written in your book before I even lived one of them. God has a unique story that he's written for each of you. Your character in a beautiful story that God has written. A a story that brings him glory and will bring you ultimate joy. Ask it in group. So, just as Harry learned some new information and it changed his life forever, so now I have given you information maybe you know or didn't know. And now it's up to you to decide what you're going to do with it. How are you going to respond to this truth that God has revealed to you through his word? Because here's, the, here's some ugly truth for you. You're a sinner, fun fact. You have sin dwelling in your heart. And in fact, God, what he says about the heart, he says it is deceitful and wicked, deceitful above all things. How's that for a little description of your heart? Deceitful above all things. Who can know it? God knows it. God knows the condition of your heart. And so we have a tendency, because of the sin that still lives in our hearts, to reject this idea of humility. And we think that we we, we like to put ourselves at the center of everything. We have a tendency to reject the, the identity that God has revealed to us. And we build our identity on you know, the person that we're dating. Or we build our identity on the activities that you do. Or you build your identity on what family you're a part of. And all of those, I'm not saying that those things are bad. I'm just saying that those things aren't the most fundamental thing to your identity. Jesus, is, if you're a Christian, is the most fundamental part of your identity in your relationship to him. But sin often prevents us from seeing that. And sin also prevents us from seeing the sovereignty of God. And instead, we like to place ourselves on the throne and we think that we're ruling all of our lives and we're making decisions and we think that we are, uh, that we are really something. That re- we're really uh, directing the path of our life. But you know what God says? God says man plans his ways, but God... The Lord establishes his steps. So you think that you're making the choices. You think you're doing things, but God is still in control, regardless of whether you recognize that or not. And so there's two responses. We can reject this truth that this passage teaches us, or we can receive it. We can be like the blind man, blind Bartimaeus, for those of you who have been to Sunday school, 
who comes to Jesus and he says the simple phrase, son of David, have mercy on me. I want to see. Have mercy on me. Let's ask God to have mercy on us and pray.